Hello, and welcome to Future of London City Bytes podcast. I'm Lisa Taylor, Executive Director at Future of London and Director of Coherent Cities. This episode kicks off our Learning from Crisis Connections series, where we explore how the pandemic is changing our relationship to shared space, community engagement, negotiation, connectivity, and culture. We start with a fascinating and sometimes surprising conversation on government's role in the economic recovery. There's an assumption that the UK's economic recovery, like the crisis itself, will be largely supported by government, at least as we get back underway. Central government has been paying out billions for direct income and business support, while councils have been doing huge amounts of frontline work and frontline spending. As we tiptoe through the economic wreckage towards recovery, there are fears that the financial burden may break some councils. There are concerns that central government may have jumped the gun on restarting various sectors. And there are suggestions that we may see a more cooperative or less market-driven approach to things like housing and town center recovery. Relations between central, regional, and local government have been relatively positive through the crisis, but the cracks are starting to show. What might this governance and economics picture look like as we move into the next pre-vaccine stage? What should it look like to give us the best chance of a healthy, long-term economic recovery? To sense check some of those ideas and find out which parts of government may be best suited to help dig out, we're talking with London School of Economics professor Tony Travers and Barbara Brownlee, Westminster City Council's Executive Director of Growth, Planning and Housing. So um, a question for Tony, but also for both of you. Um, in your opinion and your experience, which levels of government are sort of best suited to help us get through these next phases of economic recovery? Well, there's no question that this is a, a very clear example of uh, a massive challenge which requires each of the three levels of government to work on the things they do, but also to work cooperatively. And that does make it difficult. Let's just explain that, unpack it quickly. First, you know, the national government has introduced, it was then that required the lockdown, they who produced the furlough system, they who will withdraw it, they who are giving government support to firms and to local authorities and so on. So there's a very, very important macroeconomic role which has a micro-local impact. In London and other big cities, clearly, the, um, where there are mayors, or even if there aren't, the city transport and uh, policing systems are in the hands of citywide uh, government, that's also important, and clearly getting uh, a rational policy towards the future of public transport is essential to the entire functioning of big cities, but particularly London. And then last but not least, and rather the opposite, most actually, the boroughs uh, are the uh, primary local authorities who have to deal with streets, street use, roads in most cases, 95% of roads in London are run by the boroughs, not by the mayor. So the question of how planning adapts temporarily, how roads are adapted temporarily, how pavements are used temporarily, how people are made confident permanently, that's mostly for the boroughs with a bit of help from City Hall in London. So it's undoubtedly a three-sphere of government solution required to what is a massive problem. Okay, well, I, I agree. I agree there is an interplay between all three levels of government within London, and it's clear they're all required. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think Tony said an incredibly important word at the end of his, um, his response, which was confidence. And I think whatever we do um, to uh, bring recovery to central London, 
one of the key, key issues is confidence. Obviously, we are, as local government, responsible for movement strategies and, well, well half of the pavement widening. TfL, some are some. The cleaning um, uh, and, and a lot of local public health initiatives. But I think the operational side is not the absolutely key issue. I think it is confidence. I think London is a, uh, an economy which is based on mass gatherings, huge social connectivity, um, international travel, uh, interna and international immigration. And for all of those things to come back, you need confidence. And that, I think, is about the boroughs massively both together a particular role i think for the central boroughs stepping forward and reinventing themselves as safe public healthy sustainable places to be and live and work and spend money and i think that's local government a lot of that we obviously own assets in uh, both retail and um uh, and office space in central government and we can flex that and we are having those conversations about flexing space um, for more community-based businesses, for startup businesses, looking at that issue. I'm sure Tony can say a lot more than I could about this, but one of the issues in London is startups uh, not being able to grow into that medium size. We have this huge disparity in London between teeny weeny and huge headquarters. And we are having those conversations about using some of our buildings for that. Fiscally, we, you know, we are operating central government schemes regarding business rate relief, but we don't have that as a local government tool. We have um, a hole in our finances because of what's happened rather than uh, much to play with. There's no doubt that local government as a whole, again, London perhaps in particular, but not only in London, faces the problem that every single authority's income has gone down and every single authority's spending will have to go up. So uh, typically central London boroughs get a substantial amount of money from car parking, street side car parking, and also from leisure centres and other things they operate. All of that's gone for months, possibly for a long time. Uh, separately, they're having to spend more on social care, PPE and other things for social care. So income down, spending up. Now, of course, unhelpfully, this number is different for every single council in London and every single authority in the country. So the government has been given giving extra grants to councils, but nobody thinks so far the amount given is going to be near enough. Truth is, the government is going to have to bail out councils because if they don't, councils are required by law to balance their books for day-to-day -day spending within year. Otherwise, the senior finance officer at the council has to issue a so-called Section 114 notice. This is not a good thing because that means that the councillors then have to decide to balance the books in that year, come what may, and that means immediate cuts if there isn't enough income to fund spending. I don't think the government wants that. So I think MHCLG, to be fair to them, will want to try to get the right number for the amount of money to each council. But it's actually quite hard to do that because the whole thing's dynamic. And this means councils are having to be given, potentially at least, the freedom to borrow in the short term or to manage their finances, cash flow, uh, which is, you know, itself or eat into their reserves, both of which, you know, are, are things you can't do uh, more than once. What happens 
if, uh, if government gets the number wrong or in any case councils cannot handle the spend that they've been having and are forced to make cuts or to stop projects that may have gone ahead and fueled economic recovery. I'm going to ask this to Barbara, but I'll also come back uh, to you as well, Tony. Well, it, I mean, in a nutshell, Tony has described what happens. We get served with a Section 114 notice. We are officially uh, declared bankrupt unless within months uh, that council balances the books. Now, I've lived through that experience in Hackney many, many years ago. Uh, and it's a blunt tool and you get very, very blunt outcomes from it. So fire sales of land and property, um, swathes of people made redundant and as Tony indicated services simply cut and what that does not allow is um, local authorities to do I think what they do best which is to reinvent and reimagine and repurpose their services. Local authorities have been doing this for as long as I've been at work um, making savings, responding to changes, responding to growing demand at the minute, for example, um, we're, you know, we're in, one of the things COVID did for local, uh, the COVID crisis brought on for local authorities was an immediate need to get all rough sleepers off the street. That's quite a big issue for Westminster, so one at the top of my agenda. Um, <clears throat> what that has done is allowed us to completely re-examine all our services for rough sleepers. We have become much closer to that problem. Uh, it's a problem that's traditionally dealt with always across London on commissioned services provided by charitable organisations in the main. We have worked with them. People are off the streets. But jointly with those service providers, we are now very, very involved in that provision directly of service to rough sleeping, uh, both with the service providers and with um, MHCLG. And we are reinventing <laughs> solutions for that group. And that service will never be delivered in the same way again. And I think that is true. That is, that is what local government can do if it is allowed a little bit of time and a little bit of flex to do it. In Westminster, we've created volunteering banks of people. You know, that's happened across the country. We have Westminster Connects. Every authority has them. If we run out of money, all ability to imaginatively work with our residents, work with colleagues across the piece in other boroughs, uh, work as a collective is cut from us. And we are simply in a horrible fiscal position of chopping services. Everyone, as Tony said, wants to avoid that. I'm sure he's right. I'm sure central government wants to avoid that. Thanks, Barbara. Um, uh, Tony, th this question of uh, changing patterns, changing behaviours, we talked about business rates before, there's been a shift towards changing business rates, that's all on pause now. Are you seeing anything interesting in terms of potential evolution, that, that, where this has sparked some change that perhaps could take hold and, and benefit us in the future? So great is the event that's just affected British government, politics, society. I mean, uh, personally, I think you know, nothing quite like it since 1945, to be honest. So we'll be thinking through some of these consequences for years. And one of those is the potential opportunity, I put it no stronger than that, for a sort of constitutional reset. I think one of the things that uh, thoughtful folk in central government are going to realise is that their very highly centralised way of doing some things, frankly, just doesn't work. Um, 
you know, I honestly believe if the London boroughs and other councils had been sourcing PPE, they'd have done it faster than a centralised mechanism for doing it. Just, it's just, it, 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 they've got more logistical capacity in all sorts of ways, more inventive in some ways. So I think at the centre of government, there will be further soul searching about whether, not only obviously for a public health emergency, but more generally, a, a significantly more devolved version of England with more powers at the sub-national level would not, would, sorry, that it would be better, not only for a public health emergency, but in terms of proximity to, so people will feel that government is closer to them in the sense, however grudgingly the government's realised if it's going to do test and trace or test and track or track and trace, whichever three of those we're now with, uh, only councils can do that really. They're present everywhere, they have officials, they've got logistical capacity and they're the only people who will be able to do it if it's to work at all. So they will have a role in that. Barbara, you talked earlier about this question of confidence and I'm wondering uh, in terms of what's happening in Westminster uh, on the ground, uh, shops are opening, we've seen that this week, there are a lot of crowds and so on. What um, is the council able to do to provide safety, the perception of safety and the safety itself? Uh, and, and what are you alert to over the next few months? Um, I think what we have to do is um, be a connector, we, uh, you know, enable, bring things together. We cannot, as a council, you know, we simply don't have the resources needed to, to police shopping in central London. What we can do is uh, things like um, bring Veolia with uh, NWEC and one of our bids, Holber, together to provide um, social distancing ambassadors and stands covered in sanitizer and wearing, you know, a bit of PPE on the stall and reminding people wash your hands all the time, here you can do it, look, stay a little bit apart. So we can do things like that and we can do a lot of those. Um, but but that, is us, that is about us being an enabler. And I think that's the point, we're on the ground. You know, we are on the ground and we can bring together. We are fortunate in having a huge bank of residents who want to volunteer. Um, I should think most councils have that, actually. Uh, I don't suppose we're different to anybody else. Uh, Equally, we are fortunate, we are possibly more fortunate than others in having large corporations who want to be seen to be helping at this time. So I think another huge role we can and should play is to bring those together with some of our unemployed residents. You know, I mean, youth unemployment in retail, uh, non-food retail and the hospitality sector is just crippling and is going to affect the central London boroughs including ourselves terribly um, and what we are working with now is trying to reconnect some of our residents with those businesses for example the, the, the thing I've just said the social ambassadors the socially distancing ambassadors have employed some of our unemployed residents and we need we need to be making those connections I think that's what we need to do we can't police queues at tube stations. I don't think that's our role. Uh, we can work very, very closely with TfL around times. We can message. We can ensure we don't add to problems by ensuring our own workforce is completely staggered and enabled to work from home. 
you know, we can do all of that. We can message, we can connect, we can enable. We're not really out there to patrol. The one operational difference is pu our public health function, our, our um, environmental health function has always been in place for food safety standards. You know, we have always, always had teams of officers who did actually police health standards in restaurants and, and shops. And they went test, trace, track, whatever we're up to, are absolutely the team that will deliver that. And, you know, they're there, they're ready, they know what they're doing, they know their patch, as does every other London borough have a team that knows its patch. And, you know, they will be able to carry out that work locally very well. I think this is, as I was saying, with these the courses we run where we're, we're working with people from, uh, you know, for example, uh, Manchester City Council, Camden, the like, where they have been, I think, surprised themselves at how effective and fast and efficient things have been. Uh, and it's because of that, you know, it, first responder emergency training that they all have as organizations, yeah. that you have as organizations, but it's, it's lent itself really well. And I'm seeing an appetite with these sort of next generation leaders of not going back to the old stuff. Can you be more efficient? Okay, uh, I think the answer to that is a yes, uh, absolutely a yes. There is no going back to, I mean, you know, 85% of Westminster um, officers working from home within a couple of days totally efficiently. And that's phenomenal. That's after years of trying to move people into agile working, you know, persuade people slowly, talk to people, la la la, suddenly overnight. All of, all of our back office and administration and call centers, an enormous amount of service delivered absolutely brilliantly successfully uh, through Teams, as opposed to Zoom, from home. Um, so, so, you know, why would we suddenly unpick that? We have virtual committees, virtual committees that allow public to speak, to participate, uh, virtual planning, licensing, cabinet and council committees have all taken place and scrutiny. Why would we ever go back to dragging people into rooms in the evening to sit in central London uh, to hear and listen and engage in democracy locally? We should never do that. So things around delivery uh, in that way, I think have changed enormously. There's something, although it's been the most terrible thing to happen, it has sort of put a stop through just trundling along the same old tracks. And I don't think anything will ever go back. We definitely will be more efficient, 100%. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Tony, I was going to ask you um, about, I mean, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but about the experience with higher education and universities. What's happening in that world now in terms of going remote? Would you go back to exactly business as usual? Well, I doubt universities uh, will go back to usual. This will apply to further education, colleges and to schools. Uh, there are big challenges for universities. Central London, you know, Westminster and Camden are homes to a massive concentration of higher education and research. And that is going to present problems. You, you can't do laboratory based research other than in a laboratory for a start. Uh, and, well, not with great ease anyway, most of it. And separately, uh, you know, the question of students want the experience of meeting people. The, the issue of what this means for city centres 
is profound because city centers were the places and still are to some degree that people liked to gather uh, you know they might they might have preferred to have their council meetings or their university courses uh, remotely but the truth is fewer people going into city centers and staying in their home areas home neighborhoods will have profound implications potentially for central business districts not only in london but in new york and paris as well that i think is the next big challenge and not only in london i should say within the uk of course i was going to say we skip from london to new york i mean there are other other cities in in the uk are available um one thing i, I wanted to ask that you you got to it there's a, a supposition that um, now that people are only perhaps working two days in an office, you can work from not just, you know, sort of a Milton Keynes along the train line, but much further out and have a longer commute or not commute at all. And uh, if that happens, there are people saying, great, this means we'll be leveling up the economy. People will spend in their local village or town or whatever, and they'll also work in London, uh, countered against fears about loss of the creative agglomeration value. Um, and I'll, I'll start with you, Tony, and I'll ask Barbara about that too. Well, I mean, this is a massive, interesting, and to, and to me anyway, still unanswerable question. I mean, let's, if we flip around one of the remarks that was made earlier, uh, you know, about working from home, we have discovered you can do amazing things from home, uh, or at least from not being at work. Of course, looked at another way, that constitutes the biggest growth, growth in office space in central London and London more generally ever at a step. Okay, so we've suddenly created massive amounts of additional office space. Now that means it's going to be cheaper and that means more businesses that previously couldn't have afforded inner and central London rents will be able to afford them and indeed they won't actually need to leave London to go to cheaper locations. So I'm not absolutely sure it will end up leveling up because there'll be lots of office space in London at a lower price than hitherto. So I think this is going to be a dynamic, complex process. But for, for the boroughs, my personal view, but I'd be interested to see what Barbara thinks about this, I think there'll be an immediate need to try to find temporary shops to fill the ones that are empty. And there are startups that will work to help on that. And then to encourage new businesses and startups to move into empty office space, which they couldn't have got into before. So, uh, you know, done well, uh, you know, some people work at home two or three days a week, but other people fill all that space. Actually, the central business district wouldn't be any emptier. We just have different and probably newer people, probably almost certainly younger people. That's a very positive view of what might happen. Um, Barbara, what's your thinking on it? Do you agree? Yeah, well, I certainly, um, I, I agree with a lot of that. And I certainly really agree that this is yet unanswered. And I think we will see um, waves of experiment going forward. I think Tony's right. I, I, it's a wonderful way of thinking it that we've created more office space. I had not thought of it like that. I think that's absolutely right. Brilliant. We know what we also know is we have a huge swathe of it uh, standing empty. So yes, it will be cheaper. And yes, we need to refill it. And we, you know, we do not want to turn it into residential. That is for sure. And we are talking in Westminster about startups and pop-ups and you know, that thing that some of those small uses that led regeneration years ago when Hackney was not as Hackney as now and the artists move in and then the cafes move in and then a few more businesses move in. 
and Hackney became trendy and then you get a bit of growth going and you know that that I don't that won't happen exactly like that but I do think there is a range you are right of pop-ups experimental businesses um, and we'll try some and some will fail and some will not and I think that is where we do have a lever to play in making sure all of our economic development encourages and allows that and adapts space to be used for people and encourages that freedom of use you know so that's from our own space it's through planning permissions being allowed you know scrapping use of buildings i think all of those things are on the card structurally to allow exactly what tony's described i also think there's a huge um uh work stream around clean air sustainability and safety and public health you know and okay possibly taking it slightly too far to say you know we should grass oxford street and graze sheep but to be frank, foreign tourists are not coming back quickly. I doubt before, I don't know, 2022, unless there's a really a vaccine. Why would they in the numbers we need? Um, it's not unsurprising that out of 14 John Lewis's opening, there is only one in London and it's in Kingston. And, you know, that's that's Tony's argument. People are going local. We need to get them back centrally. So, in you know, what we have to do with um, those areas is make them days out for UK families. That's what we have to make some of central London. Family friendly, feel healthy, accessible, really, really sustainable, really good clean air. All of those issues, I think, come to the fore in trying to regenerate some of the real centre of London. I think there's some really interesting things there. I'm doing a webinar with uh, Re Women uh, the 1st of July on this idea of the space outside commercial, those pinch points, which are now about security and cleanliness and so on. But could there be more car-free areas during shopping hours and so forth? But again, I'm going to ask you this, Barbara, loss of parking revenue. If we go more pedestrian, what's the answer to that? Can you give it up? I think we'll have to, won't we? I mean, you know, it's not like we haven't been seeing this happen for years. Um, councils plan, they look ahead. We have been planning for a reduction in parking uh, income for some time. Um, it, councils, I, I, you know, I've worked, I've worked in councils for too long, uh, but I have never seen a time where they weren't being asked to deliver more for less. It is essentially what local authorities are good at. And they're quite good at it because they're close to the need in their borough, whatever that need is, to the income in the borough. And they have very good relationships locally. And I think that's from small boroughs to, you know, for, it's very centrally based like Westminster, who are sometimes in a much more fortunate position. I've worked in Thurrock before coming to Westminster. You couldn't get more different, but it survived on the same principles. It understood the need in the borough. It understood the strengths in the borough. It stood up and took its role in the middle of that and used the levers and resources it had, even though they were so much smaller. Utilised a lot of community or business strength to, to amplify what it could do. And I think that's the sign of a good local authority, wherever you are. So yes, I think we'll survive a reduction in parking income. Just don't ask me to exactly describe what we'll get to. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Thanks, Barbara. Um, Tony, I think uh, just a, a related question for you. You know, you've been studying the levels of government 
government for a long time, you, you in, in and out, small and large. Um, are you seeing potential here for a possibly healthier relationship between the different levels of government? Are you seeing any, I'm thinking about whether it's uh, local or regional, devolved and central, uh, I mean, it's crystal ball, but any, any thoughts? Well, at, at any time, in London in particular, the relationship between different spheres of government, you know, it, it can be good and it can be scratchy. And it doesn't, it's not always about party politics, actually. I mean, you get different kind of conservatives from borough to borough, different kind of Labour from borough to borough and City Hall. So, it, 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 so having started off this conversation saying it, it is undoubtedly uh, this a challenge which all three parts of the London government system will have to work on together. I mean, there have been some um, awkward moments. I mean, the awkwardest so far, I think, was between uh, the government, particularly the transport department, and the mayor over the funding of TfL. Now, that was, in my view, all political. It was, uh, there's no evidence at all TfL is less well run than the National Railway. Indeed, personally, I would say the opposite is likely to be the case. In the end, the government's going to need both the mayor and the boroughs for a whole range of things, but the boroughs to kickstart capital projects and all the confidence building that we've just been discussing. Um, they, the boroughs, I think, will see this as an opportunity to get some freedoms from government and from the mayor, and they'll lobby for that, they always do. Uh, the mayor uh, needs to protect the financing of particularly TfL. And by the way, if TfL cannot, and national rail system running into London, I mean, the, the scale of this cannot be understated. Both TfL's tube and bus services and the commuter rail system are losing cash between them at the rate of nearly a billion pounds a month, certainly eight to 900 million minimum. This is these are huge sums of money. And actually they're indicative of people not traveling and therefore of all the issues we've just talked about in relation to central London, in a square brackets. And by the way, the theater and the cultural sector is in terrible trouble unless people can be tempted back and made confident again. So, you know, the Oxford Street will still be there. Tottenham Court Road will still be there, but there is a real threat to the theaters, the orchestras, and uh, a whole range of cultural institutions, which I think is currently understated. Again, it won't be true only in London, it'll be true in other big cities besides and across the country. Massive export owner of the theatre industry, invisibly, but truly so. So, uh, you know, I think we are going to have to um, get government broadly pointed in the same direction to overcome these political hurdles, because in the end it's what the Treasury needs as well. They need the economy to function as well as it did in January 2020, perhaps better. Uh, there's an opportunity to do better, but that does require all three parts of London government to get it right. Although we've always, you know, there's often complaints that the arts, and particularly the theatre are London-centric, because they are, uh, but the truth is, because the, the, there's a massive agglomeration, a concentration in the West End, uh, in Westminster and Camden, of theatres, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, in the world, and then the off-West End stuff in all the outer boroughs as well, all, as you say, working together. A lot of the money for that comes from overseas tourists. About a third of the income of the West End comes from overseas tourists, a third from outside London. And against that backdrop, 
it in turn, the West End Theatre, is a significant proportion of all UK theatre, okay, or theatre takings. So if it fails, uh, one of Britain's greatest exports, I forget it, it's a cultural aspect of the country, it's part of us, risks being seriously damaged. And I don't think this is an exaggeration on this occasion. I would agree with you, um, Barbara. Yeah, I mean, you, so many of those are in your um, patch. Um, what, what can be done, do you think? Tony's just brought up the thing that makes me the saddest about this, actually. Your, your original question, uh, you know, what can we do in Westminster? Well, not, you know, we can widen pavements. We can make sure people can queue safely. Um, we can't redesign West End theatres. Um, you know, we, we don't have this, that sort of funding and that is going to be a huge arts uh, centrally funded, I think, um, programme if it happens. Brings me to my last question, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are, and I'm seeing them in parallel, discussions led by people like um, Power to Change that are about more sort of holistic, community-based town centres, uh, more in outer boroughs, perhaps in Westminster, but everywhere, where empty shop fronts are taken up by theatre and, you know, there are a lot of possibly municipally bond-funded spaces, etc. Um, but at the same time, the big landlords and developers and landowners and occupiers are having separate conversations in separate rooms. Um, I'd love for them to get together. Future of London may do that. But um, what's your thinking about this uh, very positive, community-focused approach to town centres? Is it feasible? What would it take? Um, there's no question that shopping centres and local shops in outside central London, these food shops, will have done relatively well out of the lockdown. In the end, there is a tension here for public policy uh, between, you know, central London is a massive generator of jobs for people who work in, uh, sorry, live in outer London and indeed beyond into the home counties. And uh, it's possible, of course, if, if all that economic activity or part of it spreads out, it would temporarily be better for uh, centres in outer London. But it's hard to think it would be as productive as the spectacularly successful area that central London has been. And indeed, this applies to other big cities, as I've said before. So I think there are opportunities for the outer boroughs. Uh, in all cities in, in this to improve their high streets. Having said that, you know, this is speeding up an, uh, an already going on, an already extant retail change, which I doubt will do out of centres much more good than it will do central London, actually. And the great thing about central London is, and Barbara hinted at this, and it's particularly true in Westminster, is that there are some big long-term landlords uh, the great estates and others, which is a profound advantage because they will, they're always clever at adapting. And I think many of them will adapt, uh, thinking about this as a 200-year thing rather than a 20-month uh, thing. And, um, you know, central London has survived uh, plagues, cholera epidemics, the Blitz, uh, and it will survive this. The only question is how long before it gets back to what it was. But are there advantages potentially for outer, center, outer London centres? Yes, of course there are. Well, we already have relaxed Westminster's new city plan. You know, we're allow, we'll allow restaurants on the ground floor, in shops in, on Oxford Street. We'll allow 
licensed premises will allow people to show you know movies things that would have been unheard of five years ago where you know central london was this is retail and woe betide anyone who comes to us with a planning application to move it an inch from that and that's all been swept away and i think that will just grow it will snowball those buildings will be used more imaginatively but i am completely four square with tony while i think there is some real opportunity for some um, for some changes in areas. If the centre of London isn't doesn't come back and doesn't work, more than the centre of London suffers. You know the the amount of jobs and the percentage of the economy that that is it cannot be ignored. The amount of jobs that are provided and the percentage of the economy that is central London, and we need that back. And the question is you know how long will it take and what will it look like because it won't just be office space and retail it will be a little bit varied but it will be i think major players in there it won't all be collectives of artists i don't think thank you i think realistic and tony's point about the long-term landlords being able to flex yeah. and and not just look short term is quite key um, i actually i have one tiny adjunct which is as 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 tony will know one of my little champion project is the idea of a tourist tax um for london or nationally and there are two arguments for that one is leave it alone because we're already hurting and no one will come the other argument is look we're going to be more local now anyway more uk and london based perhaps this is the time to put a pound on a hotel room uh barbara first what do you think about that um i wonder if i'm stepping into a political realm personally i think it's the time to do it yeah i mean in a sense it it is a sort of it's a very it's a zero point for the hotel and lots of the leisure industry. Um, they, they, they would not be over pleased. Uh, I can see it having this as a, they'd say it was another burden on their attempt at recovery. But the truth is there will be a very rapid recovery. It may not be to the same level for some time. I think Barbara made that point earlier uh, for tourism and travel. But it will recover and grow and people perhaps would notice it less at, if it were introduced as the whole thing came back. But in a sense, whether it's done now or at some point in the future, I do think we have to um, you know, keep in mind the need for uh, London as a place, other cities in England as places to have greater autonomy in order that they can make their own decisions. And that, that, that real need hasn't gone away. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you both, actually. I think that's all I had. I don't know if you wanted to add anything. I know you all have other things to do today, many, many other things. But Tony, did you want to close with anything else? It is you know, a big moment for cities. I mean, we, we sort of glancingly touched on this. Other cities like London overseas, for Manchester and Birmingham and Leeds and Edinburgh within the UK, to name but uh, four other cities, Glasgow as well, uh, because their central areas have all been improving in recent years and there has been a return to cities. And my slight fear is that, you know, some of the changes that have uh, got going here, if they were not constrained by government, by policy, um, you know, you just get lots of sprawl. That's the real risk in all of this, that, uh, you know, people might 
some of them move further out from cities, but they won't go a long, long way. They'll just go in the areas around them so they can still travel back every now and again. And that just looks like sprawl. And we've never, none of us really thought sprawl was a good idea until, you know, uh, actually not at all in most people's cases. So I think we need to be, to use the power of government to some degree to direct what happens, not just sit around hoping and looking and then responding to what happens. I think we, in a sense, government's got powers and it needs to use them. Thanks, Tony. Um, very strong ending. Barbara, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think that's a great way to end. <laughs> that's yeah. fine. So lots to consider from Barbara Brownlee and Tony Travers. The thank yous got very involved, including a credit to Arab's Alex Jan for the new commercial space perspective, but we're going to leave it there for now. I'm Lisa Taylor, and this has been Future of London City Bites. Thanks to all of you for listening. For information on other episodes and on the Learning from Crisis program, visit futureoflondon.org.uk. Goodbye. <laughs>